You're listening to Work Tape, episode 66. Welcome to the Work Tape podcast. We are back in the studio with Mitchell Palmer. What's up, everybody? Mitch, how have you been, man? Um, I've been pretty good, man. Um, just back on the grind and I'm just glad to be back in this space and back to the more long form conversations. And I know that I kind of made more of a return over video chat um, a little bit, which was definitely something that I enjoyed um, and definitely worked regarding the circumstances, but I'm glad to be back and doing the vibes more in person. And I mean, you sound much better. Yes, of course, it's going to be much better with, you know, proper equipment. And then um, obviously with Zoom, the codec kind of messes things up too a little bit, but no problem. No problem. But yeah, so with it being 2022, we here at the Worktape podcast will oftentimes take a look back in retrospect to some kind of landmark records that have withstood the test of time and that continue to inspire many artists today and actually, you know, continue to influence the sound of music today. And um, with that, we go back 50 years. Uh, I want to make sure I got that math correct. But we go back 50 years to the 70s, 1972. Yes. Now, the year before that, What's Going On came out, which I have said numerous times and stand by the fact that that is my favorite album of all time. And it's the one instance that I can agree with Rolling Stone in regards to their listings, especially after looking at their hip hop list, which just kind of still offended me um, in numerous ways. But that's a, a topic for a different day. But yeah, 72 was a very interesting year because when you have the early part of the decade, like sometimes it takes a little while for the new decade to take shape. So there was a fair amount of music that, at least to me, felt somewhat resemblant of the 60s, but there was still a lot more experimentation and there was a lot more records that were starting to take shape and ultimately what was going to form the sound of the 70s. And I want to start with one of the biggest examples of that, which is, of course, the beginning of what has been described as Stevie Wonder's classical period, basically starting from music of my mind in 1972. And I think they deemed the classical period going all the way up to songs in the key of life. I'm pretty positive um, that that's uh, what they define as the classical period for Stevie Wonder. But music of my mind, in my honest opinion, is pretty underrated as far as Stevie releases are kind of concerned. And it's probably because the albums that followed it were so groundbreaking and so revolutionary and had so many you know great singles that music of my mind kind of just pales in comparison directly to those but you know we definitely got more of the sense of Stevie maturing as a vocalist and ultimately as a songwriter especially with tracks such as Superwoman you know where I needed you um then the 8 minute long heartfelt ballad where essentially you kind of get two songs in one. The beginning is kind of a very smooth, romantic kind of sound that has, you know, maybe even some, I don't want to say bossa nova influence, but kind of. 
And then you get a big switch about halfway through where it becomes kind of heartbreaking and Stevie really kind of like laying his soul out there and whatnot. And of course, actually the closing track of that album, Evil, is I think one of the best Stevie Wonder songs done. And it's um, severely underrated as a deep cut too, just from the way that it progresses. And of course, the lyrics and being extremely relevant to things that have unfortunately recently happened. So we got the introduction of Stevie's classic period with that album and Talking Book as well, which had definitely some more commercial-friendly music, such as, of course, Superstition, which a lot of people make a solid argument is Stevie Wonder's definitive song or signature, one of his signature songs. I would say, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. With um, kind of some very interesting lines from, um, I'm not sure if you know this, Isaac, but Jeff Beck apparently had pretty big influence in that uh, that kind of riff and like signature motif. That was actually something that I believe Jeff Beck got and played on guitar with. Since Stevie was doing a lot of the rhythm for that song, he was doing the drums and a lot of the rhythmic things. Well, they're both pretty multi-talented. I mean, they both play everything. Yeah. And they're both excellent songwriters. I mean, Stevie tends to take the number one list for songwriters, but I mean, Jeff is great in his own way. Mm-hmm. But Stevie definitely is the hit wonder guy. Yes. I wouldn't say one hit, obviously not, but he's like the hits machine. Oh, yeah. And like I said, especially kind of with this particular period, I mean, it was just an introduction of more of what was to come. And of course, setting the precedent for quite honestly a, a legendary run that I don't think is going to really be replicated by any artist at least not that i know of where it was both critical and commercial success and uh pretty much for this period on for the next few years it was pretty much a given that cv wonder was going to win album of the year to the point that the one year that he did not release an album because he was working on songs in the key of life paul simon actually thanked stevie wonder for not putting out an album that year when he won the Grammy for Album of the Year. So (laughs) just goes to show you how much of a shoe-in he was, but of course, rightfully so. And then you had Can't Buy a Thrill, the introduction of Steely Dan to the world. Jack, do it again. I did do that middle note well. (laughs) But yeah, so Steely Dan, the, the introduction of Steely Dan, Fagan, Becker, and company setting a new standard for jazz fusion and rock ultimately maybe laying even the groundwork of what would maybe be considered yacht rock in some instances of more softer influenced rock but still having a lot of soul and jazz influence of course steely is just the band that was somehow able to craft jazzy music but do it in a way that would also be appealing to a billboard type audience. I feel like Fleetwood kind of followed that format that Steely kind of was doing. I mean, I know that Fleetwood started first without Stevie Nicks and it started, wasn't it just like a guy band? I'm no Fleetwood Mac historian, so I'm not entirely sure, but I believe that sounds accurate. Yeah. I forgot the keyboardist name, Chris McVie, something like that. But yeah, Stevie wasn't a part of them for some time and they were kind of rougher. I think their sound, I think that early 70s steely was kind of the template for that sound and you know rumors was that 77 yeah okay yeah in my opinion as great as that album is 
to me is a little bit past due when you think about it. What was going on in the late 70s? I mean, that sound had been established. So I think Rumors is one of the best versions of that. You could even, I don't want to put by a thrill to, I want to pit him against Rumors, but I think that by a thrill was a really good um, out the gate of the 70s foundation for that sound for sure. Absolutely. And let's not forget Santana, who also were big on that sound with a Latin flair. Oh, of course. Yes. I mean, Santana definitely had more of the the Latin influence. I want to say Santana was even more psychedelic. Yeah, they were more psychedelic. Yeah, Steely Dan never really made it psychedelic. They were more just abstract and kind of avant-garde in a way, especially with the way that they wrote lyrics. But they had the bossa nova, like really soft, you know, it's just really driving bass groove and electric roads. Like they had that mellow sound. Of course they could do the Jimi Hendrix, but by the early 70s. I felt like late 60s, everyone's getting crazy. Like, oh, we can do super hard rock now. You know, we, we got the crazy equipment for that. But I feel like the 70s, especially becoming the disco era, for right. sure. Oh, yeah, um, sure. And it's more funky. I mean, Rockheads really took funk and went all out in more aggressive ways, but also softer ways like Can't Buy a Thrill is a good example of that. Yeah, and I think that there's also just like a lot of basis and foundation for true like fusion music too with can't buy a thrill where it was yeah you really couldn't put and i still think you really can't i mean you can't really put steely dan in a particular box in regards to what they do i mean you can say obviously that they are probably one of the more successful jazz bands ever but they did try their hand at just quite a bit of genres and just had an incredible amount of influence to where they allowed themselves not to be pigeonholed for sure. Mm -hmm. And that kind of brings me to one of the other significant landmark albums of 72, Ziggy Stardust, David Bowie's. Love this one. Ziggy Stardust. Kind of speaking on more of the psychedelic elements that we talked about previously, Bowie kind of going more into a glam rock stage of his career. You know, the Ziggy Stardust persona was almost as big as the music off the album itself. And maybe some cases, people actually even paid more attention to what he was doing theatrically on stage. But the music definitely held up too. That opening five years is actually a pretty underrated Bowie track. Um, Really nice pianos and just a really cool groove. You know, there's a bit of a conspiracy theory with Ziggy Stardust and how the sign above David Bowie says K-West, and people have thought that there's a <laughs> No, I've never heard that. It's hilarious. And some people think that there's a potential conspiracy theory that he was alluding to Kanye West further down the line. There's quite a lengthy video on that, and that's almost kind of maybe a topic for a different episode. He missed the old Kanye so much he wanted to allude to new Kanye, to future Kanye. Oh, I mean, just the recent antics that Ye has been doing outside of music is a whole nother episode. We'll have to do that another time. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but um, (laughs) I'm not in the mood to get into more of the political aspects of West today. As graduation said, please, Mr. West, no more today. I'd rather go East today. (laughs) Uh, wow, that was a That's dad. okay. No, but Ziggy. So Ziggy's great. Yes, Ziggy's amazing. Ziggy is a benchmark for definitely what is known as glam rock, you know, power chord driven rock, just huge, huge singles. Starman, Moon Age Daydream, 
Suffragette City is also on on that album as well. So, but he knows you'll blow our minds. Yes, uh, quite frankly, like it's honestly stacked. It's it's so stacked to the point that it's almost kind of unfair in a lot of ways. It's a bit unfair just in terms of how many great songs are on there. Yeah, you know I had to. (laughs) But like I said, just kind of being definitive and talking on artists who can't be pigeonholed into a specific sound and quite frankly just did not allow themselves to be put in a box. And they actually just put out a documentary, I believe, very recently in theaters regarding uh, David Bowie. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see it, which is kind of a shame because they, I think, had it in IMAX and did a lot of remasters of some songs, which yep. would have been pretty cool to see. But I'm sure I'll get around to it if they decide to release it on streaming. But So someone who kind of got as big, actually bigger, Honky Chateau by Elton John. All right. You want to go ahead and take that one a little bit, Isaac? Why not? Okay, sure. Why not? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great record that came out in 72. I love that record. It's good. It's a... Uh, very Elton-y. That one has, uh, what's it? Space? Wait, what is it R- called? Rocket Man. Rocket Man. Yeah. Rocket I don't know why I call it Space Man. You know what? I was thinking of the Killers, and that took my mind, <laughs> which is totally irrelevant. Actually, no, they do rip off Elton John quite a bit. But no, uh, Rocket Man. Rocket Man. Yeah, it's so good. I love that record. I also love Harvest. Hmm. Yep, by Neil Young. You knew that was going to. Yeah, that's got to be in here, despite the fact that it's <laughs> hard for you to listen to that album after him pulling his music from Spotify. It's a bit hard for a lot of people to hear anything from Neil Young, trying to take more of a responsibility and management and control over their masters, though, actually. Of course, I think Neil Young ended up leaving because of claims about like vaccinations or something. Yeah, Joe Rogan. It's fine. But what's better than Joe Rogan? are the songs in Harvest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you had like, you know, Old Man and just a lot of the things that would really propel Neil Young into being kind of a figurehead for... Songwriting, singer-songwriting. Singer-songwriting and kind of the folk rock scene. You know, it's really interesting that Neil Young and Rick James also came up about the same time and were even in a band together back in Canada. So that's a very interesting parallel. But I guess it's not that interesting if you think about the fact that both Neil Young and Rick James had a bit of a, let's just call it like rebellious attitude with regards to their music. Well, because there's something happening here, even though it's Stills, technically. But I mean, Stills, Crosby and Nash and Young. Technically, yeah. So, I mean, that was kind of a big instrumental band of actually the 70s too, like in terms of that songwriting and of course for supergroups also like that was kind of one of the first notable supergroups that came around but yeah so 72 definitely laid some groundwork just in rock folk rock glam and of course don't was- forget to lose street by uh, db brothers because that is the same area more or less not the exact same yes but it's kind of the you know the folk bluesy well yeah because with the Doobie Brothers, pre-Mike McDonald, they had a completely different sound. They're in the same club as Genesis and Chicago in the sense that there are 
definitive eras and major differences in sonic characteristics, songwriting, and overall sound when you're listening to certain albums. And the Doobie Brothers is definitely one of the biggest examples of that. Kind of like Allman, and there's another one. For some reason, it just misses my mind. Yes, there's definitely a lot of overlap. They definitely had that country rock kind of flavor. I mean, a lot of their stuff was still very funk and soul based, especially in their vocals. I mean, their original vocalist, I don't know the name of him right now off the top of my head, and it bothers me. King Harvest. That was the band. They did uh, Dancing in the Moonlight. Moonlight. Dancing in the Moonlight. Yes. Yeah, no, definitely that kind of, you know, the actual good version. Oh, so you don't like the top loader cover Mm-mm. is what you're telling me. No. Which is really weird, actually. Or not weird, but interesting. I'll say it's interesting because a lot of people in our generation who have listened to both versions, there's a lot of people who really prefer the top loader version. Over, I know. Over the original King Harvest version. I know. <laughs> there's a lot of people. And I don't know if that's nostalgia from the fact that um, Walk to Remember, that's it. Yes. So there's a lot of nostalgia from people listening to it from that movie. And I mean, I think both versions of the songs have their purpose, I guess. They're, it's not bad. I just, uh, I don't know. I, I'm trying not to go and, oh, the older one's more authentic, but it just sounds more authentic. It works as a 70s composition and not as a modern composition. Yeah. So you're saying like, it's more like genuine. Convincing. Like- it's more convincing. Translating already into sounding more authentic. Okay. And I mean, I think maybe a big thing, too, could be tempo, too, perhaps the fact that I think the quality of the production works because it's more lo-fi as well Mm -hmm. for for the time and the preamps. And we get nerdy about the coloration of the sound back in the 70s. It works so well as a not clean sounding production. It sounds beautiful. Yeah. And I think that there's some authenticity to that. I don't know. At least the top loader version is technically good. I well, just don't prefer it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, maybe I think what you're kind of getting at is with Top Loader, like theirs sounded so clean because it was like the late 90s, early 2000s. It was slower. Instead of real drums, it had the drum machine. Yeah, and King Harvest, I mean, because, you know, Three Dog Night, Harry Nilsson, that era, it's very groovy. Everything's yes. got a groove. Everything's kind of have to be danceable. That song's so danceable. And so having the acoustic drums is nice. Having that Rhodes in there is nice. Oh, yeah. The Rhodes is gorgeous. Yes. Oh, it's so good. I, I want one, but we can talk about that later. No, the Rhodes, that's definitely one of the more... Get me the Mark Eight. No, that's definitely <laughs> one of the most iconic Rhodes lines or like iconic piano lines like I've heard in probably ever. Like, even before you get any lyric, I mean, that's kind of already a, an earworm just in your head. Then, of course, you come in with the lyrics. And because of the low fidelity and the warmth and even just the way that they recorded the song, and especially like when the background vocals come into, does it make you feel like you're more at like a house party or someone's place? And there's it like, it feels intimate. Yeah. And there's like a band, you know, playing. And, you know, it comes in with the keys and you're kind of have to stop for a second and then everybody kind of just joins in and it's very like low key. And it's probably one of the most feel good songs I've ever heard. It does hold a lot of value to me because, you know, nostalgia. My dad always played that song. Mm. And so your parents music becomes your favorite music. Oh, yeah. Like it's just, you know, <laughs> I remember my parents used to like tell me Paramore wasn't music, which they were <laughs> wrong. But, you know, you have to understand where they were coming from. And so, yes. It is different. 
what we were listening to in 09, like 08, 07, maybe a little embarrassing, but it was relevant for our time. We did the yeah. weird hair. I didn't do it, but I love the music. Sure. But, you know, 70s music was going to get trashed on by people who were around the 20s and 10s. So, like, oh, yeah, it's going to get trashed on by the older generations. But as far yeah. as a composition is concerned, the original is just more it's romantic. I mean, the song has a romantic attitude lyrically. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Yeah. Yes. And it fits it very. It just fits it like a glove. So I guess I don't always agree that the original is the best, but I think that's a good example of the original being the best. Oh, yeah. Because, again, product of its time, so it's going to fit better in that era and the way it was done back then. Sure. And not with crystal clear preamps. And <laughs> Well, I mean, just like I said, I think with... The, it's just different. Yeah, I want to say, I think with like the other one, it's just the top loader version is, like I said, it has that late 90s approach to it. And instead of acoustic drums, it's drum machines and which drum machines are great. I love my hip hop, but yeah, eh, you know, it's not a replacement for those Beatles records. Right. You can't replace Ringo with the drum machine. No, you can't. I mean, I know I'm just, I'm just thinking of how much of an abomination. I'm thinking of how much of an abomination it would be if someone tried to take, I don't know, Abbey road, and you stripped the original Ringo drums, and instead you did NPC playing drums. <laughs> Could be a meme. Yeah, I, I come together with the come together with a trap 808. <laughs> well, it doesn't have to be boom bat, but. <laughs> Am I going to start hearing drill sub bass? And- oh, no. Well, you, okay. So we know someone's done that. We already know just by Generation Z that someone made a beat out of Beatles tracks, but we don't need to go there, especially Drill. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, no, we don't got to do that. Yeah, so back to Toulouse Street and King Harvest is still relevant. Yeah. But yeah, listen to the music. You, sure. You, you know that one. That one's classic. Um, I think Black Water's off that record, too. I'm pretty sure it is. Um. Actually, no, no. Listen to the music is Toulouse Street. Blackwater is on a different album entirely, but still. Toulouse is great. Uh, have you listened to the whole thing before or not yet? Uh, not yet, but I've definitely heard many a great things about it. So we can definitely. Yeah, Toulouse is great. Like I said, it was just one of those things with both the Doobies, Genesis and Chicago. Oh, and the uh, Doobie Brothers guy, I think is John Hartman, I think is the. John Hartman. I think is the vocalist. I'm pretty sure. I just from quick little search that I saw, but yeah. So with all of those ones, that was from Chicago five, right? The one you're talking about the 72. Oh, 72. Yeah. Chicago five. Yep. Saturday in the park, Saturday in the park, but yeah, it's still Terry Kath and um, whatnot. And that's still when Chicago very much had a jazz rock when you could consider mm-hmm. Chicago as a jazz rock band. When they actually used to compliment Danny's drumming, but Again, a topic for another day. Yeah, and then, of course, the 80s Chicago, it just became Satara and David Foster. It, it didn't even... Like, comparing 80s Chicago to late 60s, 70s Chicago... Yeah, get out of the room. Yeah, the 60s, 70s Chicago, I mean, it feels like a cohesive band and unit and... But it feels like them. You have to admit that hits are great, but... Yeah. There's something about that thing that you capture... When something just fits a song and sometimes a song works as a hit. Sometimes a song works trying to be as catchy as possible. 
or when you're trying to target someone, like I think that does work. But I think oftentimes, not all the time, but there are many times where some great artists and bands have been ruined by that pursuit, even if it got them the hit that they wanted. Well, and I guess to maybe continue a little bit on this, just because we are in a good path to the thing with Chicago was that by the time, especially with the 80s that came in, a lot of labels didn't really want anything to do with them. I remember that. The general notion of Chicago at that time is that the better years were behind them, that they were kind of a washed out band, especially with Terry dying in the way that he did. And that in turn, I think, had a huge, huge influence on just sonically what Chicago was doing, because I feel like Terry was kind of a real, I don't want to say beating heart of that band. I mean, but no, it was like a worm. He was one of the hearts. Yeah. And obviously we know that because, I mean, if Jimi Hendrix says that they admire your guitar playing in the case of Terry Kath, where he specifically said that Terry Kath is just on a different level, and that's Hendrix talking, you know that that's something special. And so with losing him and kind of not having that sense of direction, I think that was a huge thing. But then also, you know, it wasn't like Chicago just outright gave up trying to get hit records either. They just really couldn't. And so in a big way, you kind of have to give some respect to David Foster for kind of getting them back on the charts and getting them back in the public eye and getting them, you know, very, very successful songs in that respect. It's not like it didn't look it. It's not like it wasn't good. It's just, it's kind of like when you get to know something as it is, and then it changes, and you kind of are forced to choose which one is better, even if you like the second iteration, even if the second iteration is good. You can't help but wonder, well, what about that first iteration? Was that first iteration worse or better? And the reality is, and I know you agree with this, is that the first wave Chicago is the best of their career, despite probably not being... Maybe you could even say, oh, well, their 80s era was more consistent. Maybe you could say that. I think the songs started to sound too much the same. Yeah. Oh, very much so. And so I think it's partly what makes first era Chicago so good. And, you know, you and I are very era focused. I do think that, you know, we don't have to be so rigid and structured as, okay, you only got 10 years and it only works in 10 years. That's not true. There are many artists who do a great job dipping their feet in different decades and different eras. And some people are really good at the whole 20, 30 year time span. Very few. Yes. Now, Chicago has been doing it for 40 years at this point. Yeah. 50 or 60, actually, because I yeah. think their their debut. When 69, they were, Chicago Transit Authority. Yeah, CTA. They yes. even had to change their name because of the Chicago Transit Authority. Right. Of course. They had to shorten it. Yeah. But I mean, I'll take it a step further in the sense that I'm not even saying that you have to especially with us, you know, we try to think, you know, in the way of still appreciating both. I feel like a lot of times when it comes to artists or bands that have like clear, major, distinct differences in their sounds, I think we at least do the best that we can to like appreciate both and what they have to offer. I appreciate their 80s era. It wasn't the worst. In fact, I even appreciate some of their 90s and aughts stuff. Yeah. It's actually good. But their 70s era is... 
they are one of the classic rock bands of the 70s. Absolutely. They, they are a Beatles. They are a Led Zeppelin. They are yeah. um, Pink Floyd. I mean, you had so many great stuff. I mean, Saturday in the Park, you had 25 or 6 to 4. They're an American hits machine, even in the 70s, not just the 80s alone. Yeah, so just so much good stuff. And then I do agree, like, especially when things became really more like Satara and Foster, where it was just like Satara was singing every song and, you know, Foster in turn was writing pretty much every song. And it became more about just them two to the point where Satara went solo and did Glory of Love, which was very much in that same vein. And in the Karate Kid movie, it was nominated for an Oscar, which I mean, say what you will. Um, it's a good song. It's not like it's not a good song, but it just you know, there was very much like that definitive David Foster sound where, it you know, there's key changes and it's bombastic and it's a huge chorus and it's mm-hmm. this soaring epic chorus or whatever. It felt formulaic. It, and that's kind of where you're getting at, which it worked as far as being hits focused. But yeah, there's definitely a formula to it, though. There's but certain- it just became too it, it when you contrast it to the earlier stuff, it was more free. Yes. But they used to be free, but also really good at hooking your attention. And I think that's typically the mark of a great songwriter or music artist is that you can be hooky, but you can also be not so rigid as far as 70s music is concerned, because 70s was a lot different than your structured 90s and aughts templates. Yeah, and it was even different than the 60s, too, because the 60s had a lot of jazz and early formations of rock and whatnot that were still taking hold. But I mean, a good comparison in general, just for anybody, you know, listening. And if you want to get like a real clear contrast, you compare in the case of Chicago, you compare beginnings to you're the inspiration. And there's just like a huge, huge difference. When I kiss you. Yeah. Beginnings is definitely one of them. I mean, the thousand different feelings even just the opening chords of that sound really really nice and actually you know and as much as i've talked about satara kind of being almost a dictator of the band especially in the 80s he's a very solid bass player he is very solid he's a very good songwriter he's actually a very good vocalist too yeah all three i can't hate his skill no i i I absolutely can't either satara lamb kath yeah now, Satara's ego, I'm kind of not a big fan of. It's like the Smiths. Well, actually, no, the other mm. two are kind of throwaways. No offense. I do love Andy Rourke, but we can get into that another yeah, time. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> but let's be honest with, you know, ourselves. The Smiths was really Jimmy Marr or Johnny Marr, excuse me. <laughs> it was Morrissey Marr. Yeah, it was Morrissey and Marr. Yeah. Johnny Marr. It was, was more Marr. Uh, yeah, actually, it was a lot of Marr because once Marr had creative differences, that's kind of when... I don't want to say the Smiths imploded, but kind of. Now, like I said, Morrissey has a lot of stuff that stands on its own, too. He does. People trash on him, but I actually, I like his solo stuff. Yeah, and despite the fact that, like, Morrissey does have that kind of reputation of being extremely egotistical and peddling his veganism on everybody. Yes. Um, the man is a great performer. And if he's on, you're going to get one of the best shows that you've probably have ever seen. Yes. And you can't really argue with the discography either. No, you can't. And the influence that the Smiths continues to have. But yeah, I mean, that kind of wraps things up pretty nicely. 
This has been the Work Tape Podcast. I'm Mitchell Palmer. Isaac Grover, as always. Work Tape Podcast forever. <laughs>